for a lot of kids when they come in, I think they feel like they're broken. Mm -hmm. And I think our job is to help them feel like, you know what, this is a bump. We can get past it. It just is. We've got to stop applying good and bad values to situations and that you can get through this. And how do you do that? No judging. No judging. Okay, welcome everybody back to the Undo Anxiety podcast where um, we are hoping that the stories we tell here will undo some of the anxiety that you suffer in your life. Um, And to that end, I welcome back to the podcast, um, Laura Kaler. Welcome, Laura. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for Thank you seriously for being here. So the very remarkable Laura, um, we just, uh, if you haven't heard our last episode, I encourage you to go back, listen to the whole thing because Laura's story to date um, is remarkable. So she, uh, in summary, and tell me if I'm missing anything, um, talks about kind of like going through some difficulties in her childhood Um kind of drinking through um, her high school and college years and having to kind of stop drinking, and which she did in a heartbeat one day, only to lose her brother to suicide a year later and how she kind of dealt with the fallout from that. Am I close? You're on target. And as we left, you were on a boat heading to Germany yep. at about what, 20? 26. 26 years old. I was so, on a plane. My stuff was on a boat. Okay. <laughs> All right, Mike. Fair enough. So you're 26 and you're on a plane and you're going to Germany and your brother's saying, what are you going to Germany for? Well, that's that's what I felt like he would have said. He would have said, He right. would have told me. Yes. Um, and in my mind, he was saying it like, what the hell are you doing going to Germany? And I was like, I don't have a choice was what... I felt like I had to, I had to make a change. I had grown up in the same area in Northern Virginia, and it was it was time. I I felt like I was ready. I wasn't running away from it like a lot of times in sobriety they say don't make a change within the first year. Right. And it had been you know quite it had been four years when I moved over there almost four years. So I was like okay I think I'm ready I'm ready for this, and so I moved over to Germany and. Um, it was an amazing experience. I, I, you know, I kind of came out of my grieving for my brother mm-hmm. at that point. Um, at some point, it just kind of I, it it was. I felt like I had to rejoin the living. I remember having that feeling like I can't. My first thing out of my mouth can't be oh, and I have a brother who died because I felt like for a, as long as I was growing up, I was his sister. I was Barney's yeah. little sister, and now I was dead Barney's sister. So mm-hmm. I, it, it was like, these people in Germany don't know him. So there's no real explanation. And and I did share here and there, but it wasn't... It what didn't define you, it right? It didn't in define In anybody's me. mind, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And I, and I do think when you lose somebody, whether it's tragically or not, right. um, you know, I do think at some point you have to call an end to the official grieving. Um, and sometimes you have to get out of your context just not to be the person who lost somebody, you know, right. because, you know, like um, uh, a friend of mine lost a, a daughter. She was nine. Oh. Um, and after a couple of years, he moved away, um, even though you're not supposed to make moves, right. you know, um, in large part because he felt like he was ready to move on with his life, but he couldn't stand the looks of, you know, pity he was getting from everywhere, buddy, everywhere. Yeah. And so he needed to, like, shift his context. And mm-hmm. that was really important for him. So I get why maybe Germany was the right call for you at the time. And it was. It was such a liberating experience. And um, about a year into my time over there, I met my now husband, 
and um, the amazing Fred. The amazing Fred. He is such a good man. <laughs> he is a good man. He is. And um, so we met in May of 1990, and then he left Germany in November of 90. Fred was in the army at the time. Yes. Okay. And so he left in November to go back to the States for more training. Mm-hmm. And this was all right around the time Desert Storm was starting. Right. Yeah. So he was in the States. I was in Germany. And they put down Stop Loss. There was a movie called Stop Loss. But they wouldn't let us leave Germany. Me. You. So, specifically. Yeah. yeah okay. Well, anybody. Right. Like, he had left. He had gotten out. But, like, at my time, I was getting married. We had the date set. He and my mom had figured everything out. I was just supposed to show up. And so, um, <laughs> so there's I, a movie in there somewhere, I know, right? There's right? a little role reversal, there right? Is. Fred Absolutely. and your mom set up the wedding because you are stuck in Germany. I am stuck in Germany, and he's in Missouri, and she's in Virginia, and so they <laughs> they planned it. But I um, I ended up quitting my job because they wouldn't let me go home on leave, and so I just quit. And I had I had a pretty good a decent job, and um, so anyway, so I quit and I came back home. And then Fred and I got married, and then we moved to Hawaii, which wasn't too shabby. And no, it sounds all right to me. Yeah. Yeah, right about now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So we got over there, and his thing was, you have to go back to school. You need to finish your degree you know, before we have kids. I think it's important. And I was terrified because my first couple of times going back to school, like I, I went to the one college for you know that I left because of the fire alarm. Right. And then I went to another school that was a pretty decent school, but I failed out. And then I went to the community college and really like business law classes. I really liked law because it was very, it made sense to me. Mm-hmm. But I was going one class a semester because that's all I could afford. And there's no way to finish that way. Right. So anyway, so I get to Hawaii and Fred said, you need to go back to school. So I signed up. Oh, go ahead. Are you still carrying the script at this point that you're not that bright? Yes, absolutely. Because okay. of course I wasn't that bright. I didn't make it. Got it. I've been to one college after yeah. another. I've gotten kicked out. Yeah, it doesn't work for me. I'm not And a even younger, right? Even younger. Didn't your family kind of give you this impression a little yes, bit? Yes, like that I was not good in math and that, you know, oh, you're you're a good writer. And I, I do. I am a good writer. Mm-hmm. But the math thing and everything was just, you know, like there was no way I would ever be able to finish college because I never... I didn't have that point of reference. So, And as a side note, you know, um, for, for parents who are listening, mm-hmm. um, uh, would you agree that, you know, the family mythology we create around what our kids can't do is not particularly useful? Not at all. Okay. Not at all. And it's, it, you know, it, there was, and back then I don't think there was strength-based either. Right. Like, you know, like I knew I, my mom would say, well, you're a good writer. You're better at writing. You're not good at math, you know. The like suggestion it, being yeah. like, yeah, you're good at something, yeah, but, but you're bad that. at this set of things. But not that. Right. So, so I went, I, and the problem was is we only had two and a half years left in Hawaii when I went back to school. So that was um, like six semesters. Right. And it, well, no, five, because it was a summer. Okay. So I had two, I had a fall I don't know. I, I had a very limited time to finish college. I can feel that you are anxious about this, oh right? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and, John, my first semester back, I had 23 credits. Good Lord. I know. <laughs> so full-time is 12, right? Correct. I mean, and yes. so you're double, you're double-timed. I double-timed. Okay. And I, I had no idea, but I was like, I'm not working. My husband said, I need to finish my degree. It wasn't like he was being telling me I had to, but it was... He's encouraging. He's, he's encouraging yes. because it was good for us as a couple. Got it. 
And, you know, when I, I looked, I wasn't working. I didn't have to worry about beer anymore. I didn't have to worry about boys because I was married. So it was all focused on school. And I'm like, I can do this. I think I can do this. So Still feels real aggressive, right? It, it I mean, did. in retrospect, would you, if you think about a kid you've worked with, would you ever encourage anybody? No, okay. no. <laughs> but the thing was, is if you want to look at it this way, I had seven years of sobriety under my belt. Right. Seven years seven at that point? Seven years at that point. How old were you? I was 29. So you were your last drink, you were 22. Correct. That's amazing. Yeah. Okay. So you're seven <laughs> years sober at 29. Seven years sober. I'm 29. I'm married. I'm not working. My job is to go back to school. Got so it. I so was I'm going to go full bore. Full bore. Yeah. I don't know if you ever watched the show Major Dad, but there was this one character on it called Gunny, and she was like very efficient and very on fire, and that's my husband's nickname for me is that I, when I am given a task, I am like... <laughs> So we have to keep this in mind because we work next door to each other. I know, so I right? may have to take advantage <laughs> of this fact. Absolutely. <laughs> Put Gunny to work. Very efficient. So, um, so I went back to school. I had seven classes, 23 okay. credits. Yep. And I made five A's and two B's. Holy cow. And one of them, one of the A's was in algebra. So I Xeroxed my, or I copied Xerox is mm-hmm. a bad old word. But I made a copy of my report card and sent it to my dad. Hell yeah, you did. And uh, <laughs> wow, there was a little bit of what in there? Yeah, a little bit of. <clears throat> yeah, <laughs> that's the noise. That's yeah. the noise I'm looking for. Like, see, look at me now. Yep. And so and algebra, even algebra. Right? So here's your girl who's not so good at math, ace in the math. Yes. Right on. So I ended up having the rest of my semesters were all very similar. I took 21, 18 credits, whatever. Right. I made it through and graduated with a 3.8. You killed from, it. I did, from you, the University of Hawaii. Amazing. Very exciting to do that. Um, how were you able to shift that script so dramatically? And I get that sobriety probably has something mm-hmm. to do with it, but a 3.8, that's not thats not <laughs> a phoned-in GPA. No, like that's, that's no. That's hard work, That's and that's intelligence. Yes, and you know what I think it was is the, the thing about school that's great is it's instant feedback. Like you, you, you work hard or you work and you give it to somebody else and they give it back to you with a grade on it. And I thought that was very, I, that was exactly what I needed at the time. Right. The other thing was, is I figured out what worked for me learning wise. I was not, I used to sit in class and I, when I talk to kids and I hear them talk about it, I'm like, oh my God, that was me. But they'll say stuff like, well, this was my experience was people would write down notes. Yeah. And I would be so caught up with wondering what was so important that they wrote it down. I probably have ADD really bad, but I would just sit there and go, what did you write down? What is what? And then I'd get in trouble for talking. (laughs) And so it was always this thing like I never really learned how to listen and how to study. And so what happened was what I would do is I would tape record the class. And this is with 23 credits. I would tape record the class, come home, listen to it and type up the notes and then I would read them. So wow. I had to hit all of, I had to be kinesthetic, auditory, and visual. It's the only way I could learn. And so time consuming too, very, right? It was all consuming. Yeah. So, and again, all or nothing, it goes back. I was really good at the all or nothing. Like I could do that. And how adaptive of you, right? So to recognize, okay, there's only one way I'm going to learn this stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be, it's going to take everything I've got, but I'm going to have to record it. I'm mm-hmm. going to have to come back to it. And, and it took to a use... while to get that because I used to just listen to the tape recorder and then I'd be like, you know, oh, like, yeah. you know, whatever. 
So then I realized, okay, if I listen to it and type it, then I can make my notes and I can study it. And it wasn't until later that I really realized, you know, I was trying, I was, I'm not a auditory learner. Mm-hmm. I am not at all. I kind of shut down, I whistle, whatever, but this is what works for me. And, you know, when I started working with kids in the school that didn't want to come see the social worker, I would be all about, well, let's organize your bag. Let's fix, let's, how do you study when you study? So you put that experience mm-hmm. to work. I was going to ask you, Absolutely. do you use that with your kids now? I do. Absolutely. I do. Yeah. And with my children at home yeah. for, over the years that it is important. Like nobody ever teaches us how to do that. Right. No. And I, I that that's something that's, um, that worries me too is, you know, I, I work with a lot of kids who on the day they're headed off to college, they don't know how to study openly, mm-hmm. don't know how to study. And so they're just kind of inventing the wheel as they go. And we're hoping for the best right. as we send them off. Right, right, right. And so mm-hmm. it seems like, you know, and there's like this optional study skills thing. But when you hear about what actually happens in there, it's kind of like, oh, there's a teacher up there that's available if you need help with whatever you're studying. If you and, know what to ask. Right. Like, you know, and you don't even know. Like I always thought like there was something wrong with me in terms of in the class that I couldn't, I couldn't do like on the test and I have a good memory. Right. So it was like, what is the disconnect here? And it was all in how I took in that information and that I needed repetition. We have to do such a better job of teaching the way kids learn, right? Right. Because, because kids who are walking around with a 2.0 GPA can be really exceptionally bright. Exactly. We're we're not teaching them right. We're not. And not one size fits all in the school. Right. So I think that's the part. So so I, I graduated from college, and that was awesome. My parents came out for graduation. Very, They were very pleased. But it was even at that time, I was like, I'm glad they're here, but this is me. You didn't like, need did, This was your, your um, I achievement did this. here. Yep. Yeah, 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 I did this. And, you know, um, then my husband, because he was in the Army, was he was supposed to go back and teach at West Point. So the Army sends them back to, um, to grad school. So he was going, to, he was applying to grad schools and he said, why don't you apply? And I was like, oh, I, no, no, I could get another bachelor's, but there's no master's degree for me. Right. You don't understand. I'm no, done. I'm yeah, done. That right. I, like that was enough. Yeah. And I, we applied to a few schools and we ended up getting into University of Illinois out of, no, no, neither of us had ever lived here. Had no idea about it, and is we that were, right? Yeah, we lived in Hawaii. We so had but happened to get into the University of Illinois. Both, both of, of us. You. He was in environmental engineering, and I got into social work. So we moved back, rented a house, and we rode our bikes to campus every day, and just had a ball and learning. and And it was weird because I had a I had a, to do a mental shift when I got to grad school because. I, and it was funny because we laughed about this. I felt like I was like in the witness protection program. Like, I am not somebody, I should not be here, was the feeling. Why? Because it was back to that old feeling. Like, I, ah. I, I did this bachelor's, but that was a fluke. Got it. So like, I still don't belong. Even I still though I have belong. that 3.8 and I mm-hmm. have that diploma on the wall. The old th- thoughts came back. Wow. And I, and I was really, I mean, like, I got in. I ended up getting an assistantship, so my school was paid for. And I still, and still, still, and so that first kind of like, who do you think you yeah, are that you're yeah. in grad school? Huh? Yeah. Like the, the old negative kind of thoughts that I hadn't felt like in a long time, even though there were, when I was a kid, I felt like I was always going to be okay. There were some thoughts like, oh, you're not a good student. You can't do mm-hmm. this. Like you're, you know, in my family history, like my, with my mom, she never finished college. 
So she was always like, you'll be fine. You know, your husband's in the military. Her husband was in the military. She was fine. You should be fine. Got it. That yep. kind of thought. Very so, old school thinking, yeah, right? Like yeah. you can rely on your husband. He'll yeah. take care of you. Yeah. And, and he, he would have. But, sure. you know, for us to be what we wanted to be, you know, so I, I finished, I, I ended up the first semester in grad school. I didn't do as well as, I think I had three Bs and an A. Okay. Which is still fine. But the next semester I was, I was back. And back, like back getting your A's. A's. Yeah. Yeah. A's and I think I had three A's and one B. So it flipped at that point. Uh-huh. Like I was, I, my, my desire, it was almost like I was testing fate. The old me, like from high school, where it was like, I don't have to do anything. What oh, study, oh, I see. You know, and kind of trying to reject it before it could reject me. And did, uh, I'm trying to read your affect here a little mm-hmm. bit. Was, was it, did that old script own you for a period of time? It like did. A, you almost looked like, mm-hmm. like, oops, you know, three B's and an A, man. I'm yeah. slipping. Like, here, here's proof that, you know, that like. I'm not good enough yeah. to be here. I don't deserve to be in this oh, program. The not good enough script, yeah. man, is about the most powerful thing in anybody's mind, isn't it? It is, and it's man. awful. And so the next semester, I mean, I got my grades, and I was like, okay. And, you know, I was, I was a little bummed out. And then the next semester, I was like, you know what? I'm here for, again, I'm here for a reason. There's some reason why I'm still, where I, why I'm here. Yeah. And I need to, to do this. And so the next semester and the following ones were much better. So I ended up graduating with my MSW in 96. I turned in my thesis on the way to the hospital to have my daughter, my eldest. Is that right? Mm-hmm. She was born in Urbana. That's amazing. Yeah, and that's where she goes to school, mm-hmm. so it's interesting. Yeah, it is. Um, so I um, so I finished school and had my daughter, and 10 days later we moved. Drive, drove cross-country to West Point where my husband was teaching. And, you know, after being on this fast-moving train of undergrad and grad school to baby to nothing. Right. Was really, really hard. Oh, yeah. So you didn't have a job. Uh-uh. You, right. Mm-mm. So you, And you've got just a newborn. A brand a new baby. A, a very difficult baby, I must say. Very needy. And ironically, I had put on a lot of weight during my pregnancy. So like I, I gained like like three times what you should, <laughs> um, like 80 pounds. And um, seriously. And my... Um, you know, when I got there, which is no small thing. No, right? I mean, it's distressing. Yeah? It is distressing. Yeah. So here I am at this place where the best of the best is mm-hmm. West Point. All right. And the wives are likewise or spouses are pretty amazing, too. And I Ooh. just and here I am. I'm not who I am. And so you feel like a fish out of water. I do. It, yeah, I do. I didn't feel like myself. And, you know, this whole baby thing was was odd. And then I my husband and I were talking and he said, you know what, there's an they had the, the West Point TV station, and on it, it said, you know, that there was a job at a local college that taught classes at West Point, and he's like, why don't you apply? And I said, I've never taught before, and he said, why don't you just apply? Well, I did. I got the job, and then that's what I did when we lived at West Point. I taught at a local college, you know, and I taught, I think I taught 12 classes the whole time I was there, and I loved it. You loved it? I loved it. What do you make of the fact that you... At, at uh, for, for a large part of your life, didn't think you were particularly bright, and now you're a college professor. You know? I know, <laughs> I know. It <laughs> was like almost a like a sick massive joke. Massive turn, right? Yeah, it was. It was weird because it was like you know, and and my husband was really helpful then because, or not then, but always. But at that point, because he was just being a professor too, mm-hmm. 
And he would say, he goes, they don't know otherwise that you're not the legitimate source. They assume you are because you're in front of the class. So own your expertise and go, huh? And go. And so I learned, and he really helped a lot with that, like having a clear syllabus, which also guides us kind of in our practice, having clear goals for the clients. And, you know, that kind of stuff. So teaching was really liberating for me. It was... um, it was really fun, and I think it kind of models the therapeutic process because there's, you see growth, and there's a beginning and an end. Because I found when mm. my kids were really little, I couldn't practice. It was too hard emotionally. To practice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I stepped away from actual. What do you direct- think that is about, like, uh, we parents who are therapists, you know? Like, I, I felt a little bit of that. Like, I could not work with kids Mm-hmm. My son's age or younger. Right. <laughs> I think it's I think it's protective. Yeah. I think it is because it's just too hard. It's too um it's it it's scary. Mm-hmm. It's scary. Yeah. And um And so, you can't stand their pain in no, a way, right? Yeah. No, because you can't it's not that you can't do anything about it, but you can't you can't make it better in right. that mo- in a thera- in a therapeutic moment. Right, right, and then you become parental as opposed to like objective and therapeutic, yeah. and yeah, right, right, so right. So right. I stepped away from it, and then just taught when we were at West Point, and then we moved again, and I taught, and then everywhere we went, I taught until we moved to North Carolina, which was before we lived here, and there I ended up working for Duke University on a study helping pregnant women quit smoking as a counselor. Okay, and that was very cool. Very cool. And so everywhere I worked, though, everywhere we lived, I, I taught until yeah. then. So. so so you did a whole lot of teaching. Mm-hmm. So did, did that undermine the idea that this was not your thing or you're not capable of this or you don't belong here? Did no. You ever... it, no. It, it did not. It, I saw that I knew I could connect with those kids, and I knew that my job was to help them believe in themselves because I had one teacher, a lot of teachers at University of Hawaii, probably one of the best schools. I've ever encountered. Maybe it was the time. I don't know. But I had a teacher that very first day that I went to school with the 23 hours ready to go. <laughs> and this one teacher at the end of the day, because I was there all day, right, saw me as I was walking to my car and said, hi, Laura. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that was like at eight o'clock this morning. And she remembers my name. And I remember that feeling. And that was from the first day. I remember that feeling that I belonged, that I could do this. And the more I learned, the more I, I got really hungry for it. Yeah. And um, so I, I, and I love being able to help people believe that in themselves. I love that moment. Hi, oh, Laura. You know, it, I know. It's, it's amazing how, how little it takes, right, to, to feel like, okay, I'm in my shoes. Yes. I, you know, I'm it's in okay. my world. I'm in my life. It's okay. Yeah. 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 And so... And it's a gift you probably give to kids pretty frequently, I would I guess. I feel like I do now. I mean, uh-huh. I, I feel like the thing that... That, you know, for a lot of kids when they come in, I think they feel like they're broken. Mm -hmm. And I think our job is to help them feel like, you know what, this is a bump. We can get past it. It just is. We've got to stop applying good and bad values to situations and that you can get through this. And how do you do that? No judging. No judging. So how, how do you even get to the point? So you're teaching college classes here, there, and everywhere. Mm Mm-hmm. How do you get to the point where you decide, you know, I'm going to be a practicing therapist now? Oh, wow. How do you make that call? You know what I mean? Like, um, that, that's a, there, there's a difference. I right. I mean, you know, having done both. Right. Yeah, it's a, a little different gig. It is a very different gig. Yeah. I think what happened was when we, my husband had just come home from Iraq after a year, 
And we, there was this rule, boots on the ground for so long before you would deploy again. What was it like to have him there? Have him home or gone? Have him in Iraq. Oh, boy. You know what? It was tough. There's a lot of things that are really tough about it. I think the best, the, the thing that I really wanted to do was, I was not a fan of the countdown calendars. I wasn't, a, I didn't play well with others with all of that stuff. Because <laughs> number one, I didn't want my kids to think they had to wait for him to be there to be present and to be wow in their moments. And Do I you feel like a lot of army families did that inadvertently, like they, they were on hold? Their lives were on pause until. I think I think sometimes they back. do. Yeah. Everybody's so different with yeah. how they do it. A lot of the people I know that I hung with during that time were thought more kind of like I did, but I think I think sometimes that's a feeling, and I don't think it's done malevolently at mm. all. You know, I think it just is part of let's, you know, we want to make sure our you know, and and then the other thing is is you don't know. I was going to say even if you have a countdown yeah. calendar. You, it was unpredictable, right? It was unpredictable. Yeah. I mean, you my, could reset that calendar yeah. any day. Yeah. So I and something could happen, you know. Right. I mean, like a lot of people don't make it back. Yeah. And so were you afraid? I didn't go there. I mean, mm. I, I I guess I did before he left. I assumed like the worst case scenario, and that if he came back, I could deal. Whatever he came, however he came back, I could deal. Wow. Luckily, he was in usually pretty safe situations. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, kind of of his jobs. Um, but a lot of people don't. So, right. and, you know, I, I think that with my kids, um, that was something that we always talked about, you know, and it was, it was hard on them because he was gone for a long time yeah. at different points. But at that point he had come home and mm-hmm. he said, if I, if we stay here at Fort Bragg, we are, we're going to be gone again, like by this time next year. And he said, we can either do that, move to Miami, or move to Chicago. And I'm like, I'll help you pack, because I'm not moving. <laughs> I, had just, I had just gotten my dream job, which was kind of what led me to this. I had gotten a job as a counselor at a private school. Got it. And my kids were at the school. I could look out the window. There they were. And it was a small school, and it was I loved it. And I was like, if we move somewhere, I'm going back to school so that I can work in a school. Because okay. it'll work with our family. Yep. So fast forward, we moved here, and I went back to Loyola and finished my certification in mm-hmm. the schools and was very lucky to get a job at a really good school, and I loved it. And then I started with the help of <laughs> when you and I met, like, and <laughs> you, you were like, have you ever thought about it? And I was like, yeah, I used to do it for a while, but at one point in my life, I did it for a brief amount of time when we were in New York, which was when I realized I can't do it when my kids are little. And I was you like, private practice. Yeah. Literally. I, yeah. I had done it for like maybe six months when I lived in New York and uh-huh. I was like, Oh, I can't do it. And so what um, was, what was the difficulty then? Do you remember? I do. I was, I was working with kids who had been, um, sexually abused and that was just, it was hard. That's hard work. And then coming home and being present for like a three-year-old, mm. very—I I just couldn't—I couldn't do it. And so the teaching worked. Yeah, as therapists, I think it's so important that we know where our limits are, right? Where you know, like, and and some some people, I'm amazed when I come across somebody who can work with that population. Oh, you know, I and, am too. <laughs> you know, I'm glad they're there. So am but I. It's not me. Right. I can't. That's not. I mean, if it's part of somebody's story, mm-hmm. I can. As an adult, I can deal. Yeah. I think it's hard with kids. So do I. So it's do I. Really, and I, really and I really value people 
who can work directly with those mm-hmm. kids, you know, and um, and and sometimes I think it's really hard to work with just with little kids. Sometimes right. I'm kind of like, hey, my office was clean a second right. ago. Put this crap back. You know? <laughs> I know. I know. I think it's the insight. Right. You know, it's hard to and bless the people who can do the play therapy. Yes. Yeah. You know, I I do work with some younger kids, but they usually are. Uh, there's some insight. It's yeah. like, you know, and that's, I, I like that. And that's part of why I like teaching too. Cause yeah. people are usually in a place where they want to grow. Right. Good usually. Point. Good point. So, does your, does your life, so the story you've been telling us here, to what extent does it, it inform the work that you do? Oh gosh. It, it kind of impacts every single thing. Um, every, every client, um, and it does. It, it, I think what it does is that it help. I, I think that when we can realize that, and a, and a client can realize that there is a way out, that you're not stuck somewhere, and that if you can impart that to them without sharing your whole story with them. And mm-hmm. like I said, sometimes there's there are points where I think it's appropriate to share, like, yeah, I know what that's like. I've been there. I've done a felony too, you know, or whatever. Not that it, I mean, not that I got arrested for a felony, but a fire alarm is one. Right. Um, I actually do think, I agree with you. I, um, you know, we were in, in my program, my mm-hmm. graduate program, they were really clear, like, you know, have a really firm boundary. You're not, you're not to share much of your story. Mm-hmm. And there were times where I found that really constricting. And if somebody was talking about loss, I felt like, if I let this person know that I know what it's like to suffer a loss like this, mm-hmm. you know, I think that might help them. And and so I started disclosing a little bit more, and I felt like that's helped. Have right. you had that experience? I have, and I, I I do it. I don't do it a lot, but like if I'm if I'm working with somebody who's newly sober yeah. or just trying to, it is relevant. Yeah. Like this is how I know this right. works, and you know, if somebody's gone through a loss, like you said, or a, a uh, one of those snapshot moments where you feel like everybody's looking, you can let them know, yeah, I wasn't a statistic before this, but yes, now I am. And, you know, that's how, I, not necessarily this is how I got through it, but that connection. You know, and I'm thinking about like, you know, you and I both work with teenagers and uh, yes. pretty frequently. And I'm thinking about, we were talking a little bit about the internet age and you had a kind of pre-internet age moment where you know you were the, you were the kid you I were the right you were the scandal mm-hmm. and um you know so now you know I, I don't know once a month or so I get a scandal kid and right. you probably do too right yes. because it's like this showed up on Snapchat or this showed up on Instagram or right. you know um this is a party I wasn't invited to whatever right um and you can probably relate directly to those kids I would imagine yeah absolutely and I think the thing is is that ours wasn't documented there wasn't always somebody waiting to take a picture and then shoot it to the internet or whatever. And, you know, back in our day, we had that roadblock. Like, if you took pictures of somebody, you had to go get it developed. And if there was a negative picture in there, that person would call your mom. <laughs> right. And you would get busted. And so there's no roadblocks for kids no now. No firewalls, and no roadblocks, nothing. nothing. No. And, and, you know, we hand them these phones because we want to stay in touch. Right. But we don't talk about it. And so I think that that does impact that part does impact me now when I work with kids is yeah. that, you know, parents do have to monitor sometimes a little bit of things right. and have convers not necessarily monitor, have conversations, talk, communicate. Like you always say, be available. Yeah. Don't be afraid to have that higher level conversation with these kids. Because if you, 
if you don't, or if you think everything's okay as long as you're not looking, right? You know, then everything hits a fan and people are caught off guard. And you're wondering why is it not okay? Yeah. And then you get the parents. I don't know if you've had this experience yet, but I had a dad in my office not long ago who took his daughter's phone, didn't know much of what was going on, and spent all night reading every single text oh, out of context that oh, she had no. ever sent or ever received. Oh, my gosh. And actually called Verizon at like 4 in the morning and said, they're not all here. I want every text that was ever sent from this phone. And he got more. I mean, oh, he, And no. he showed up to my office, you know, bleary-eyed the next day, like, oh, my God, I think she's doing crack. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it was like, <laughs> I'm like right. I, I think you don't have to panic. Right. I think you shouldn't. To invade the privacy to that extent because right. you're you're ruining your own life by doing it. Exactly. You know? yeah. And the thing is, is like have the conversation. Is there something going on that yes that you know you want to share or you know? But I think those conversations start when they're so little. You have to talk to them early, like with my kids. When what I and not that I'm perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but I can remember when my youngest daughter was like three, and we had some friends over, and the mom was drinking a beer. Mm-hmm. And my daughter said, mommies aren't supposed to drink beer. You don't drink beer. Like, and I was, and I, I thought it was what kind of. What a keen observation, yeah, right? Yeah, and I yeah. thought it was kind of funny because I was like, oh my gosh, yeah, I, I don't drink beer. Right. And she's noticing that somebody else does. So I, you know, I had a conversation with them just like I did about my brother, you know, and it, and it wasn't, it was always age appropriate. Yeah. Like, you know, he died in an accident and then slowly, you know, when they were able to, understand it yeah then you share the full of it but right they always knew like i don't drink and it was initially i'm allergic because i am <laughs> right because right, it right. doesn't work for that's me that's a great that's a great way to handle addiction right mm-hmm. i'm allergic that's bad things perfect. happen yes. when i do it it's it doesn't my body doesn't work well with and it and then as they approach 15 16 17 are you a little more overt and oh yeah oh i would say even when like they were in dare i would we would talk about it and and say you know they knew at that point that I was what I was. I remember my oldest daughter in the car with me once, and she said something like, what do you know you're perfect? And I had to pull the car over, and I said, wait a minute. And I told her what happened to me in ninth grade. You did? And yeah, I did. So this idea of, you know, um, parents probably ask you the same question, or parents typically don't ask me. They tell me, I'm not telling my kid what I did, because right. that's tacit permission, and I refuse and I would say, oh, I would tell them your story. I the would, good, bad, yep. the ugly, tell them your story. And, you know, like, and then they'll get it. Then they'll they know. Do. And if you don't, they're going to know you're lying to them. Absolutely. <laughs> right? And I think, I think for, for me, it was like, it was, at, it had to be at the right moment. It wouldn't, it's kind of like when you, somebody says, oh, we've got to have the facts of life. Right. Discussion with my kid. That's an evolving, ongoing conversation from very young about the facts of life so that you, if they don't talk to you about the little stuff, they'll never talk to you about the big stuff. Parents, so, listen yes. to Laura right oh. now. Like <laughs> this is, this is, this is, this is, I, I talk about this almost more than anything else. I talked to parents the other night um, and that was probably the biggest point to hammer home is none of these talks are one and done. You know, we'll do it when there's the right age, you know, every kid is developmentally different mm-hmm. and it has to be this open ongoing thing because your kids are going to have questions and kids are better at talking about this stuff than Absolutely. we are sometimes, right? Well, because they've been raised by parents whose parents didn't talk as right. much. And so we talk and we are open and sometimes kids don't feel comfortable talking to their parents, yeah. but if they have a Bob and Sally like I did, 
I could have talked to them about anything when I was growing up. So as long as your kid has somebody, whether it's you, whether it's somebody else, it does, that's where the whole village mentality, I think, comes in. And, you know, I, I, I wouldn't have made it without having them to talk to, those parents. When I think about, like, you know, you and I have these similarities in our family trees, <laughs> right? You know, yes, um, we do. And, uh, and, and two of them are suicide and addiction, right? Right. And, um, and I think there's an inclination, and we were talking about this earlier, um, in a lot of families to, shh, let's mm-hmm. not talk about this, or let's wait until they're a little older or right. something. Um, and I think your point kind of is, well, no, start that conversation young, mm-hmm. age appropriate, find a, find find good language to use. Exactly. But be open about it. Absolutely. Like I I mean, I felt like my brother was such an impact on my life because we were so close in age and we had we did have a lot of fun together. He was a great guy. Yeah. And I wanted my kids to know, you know, so I talked about him and you know, they they'll still share stories that they weren't even there for that are funny. And when they were little, you know, I can remember one of my kids saying, well, where is he? And I said, well, he, he died. It was an accident. Mm. And that's at that point, that was enough. Yeah. And then as they got older, you know, it was easier to share the reality of it because they couldn't understand suicide when they're like five or six. And you don't want to no. impose that no. on a, a mind that can't mm. integrate it, right? Absolutely. Right, they need right. to have the context of what, what it was and yeah. that, you know... And so when they were older, I did share with them about that. Right. So and it and it did make sense at that point, you know, yeah. to to let them know. So, um, but it, it is it is interesting though the talking with your kids about everything, you know, as much as you can have those conversations, even if they're hard, because your kids need you. You yeah. know, they may they do that jellyfish thing where they. They come in and then they go out. I think it's like, <laughs> you know, you, you have to be patient with them because they're they're learning. And I was talking to a parent the other day and they were saying something like, you know, do you think it's, it's bad that I haven't heard from my kid yet because they were studying abroad? And I said, you know what? You've given them the tools. You can see them on Find My iPhone. <laughs> they're, yeah. They're 4,426 miles away. It's okay. <laughs> but they're, you've got to trust that you have given them the tools they need to fly. Trust your parenting, yeah. right? Yeah. And you didn't just beat them, right? No. Yeah. No. They you, know. It got there, and it was good. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Oh, I love gosh. that. You are such a gift for sure to your your clients and to your daughters, and um, and I and I – Want to know? I want you to know that I so appreciate you and the work you do. Um, and I think I think there's an important question that we have to answer before we're done here. Okay. Um, if you if you had one Springsteen song <laughs> <laughs> that you could carry with you for the rest of your life, that you could tap into anytime, if you had to pick one, is this a fair question? Absolutely. All right. You know what? You have an answer. Absolutely. Let's hear it. No surrender. No surrender. Mm-hmm. No retreat, baby. No surrender. Okay, so what's so important about that song? Oh wow. Okay, when that live album came out, I think it was the 1975 to 1985 album. Oh, we both know it was. We know, we that know one. it was. Bruce is walking to the left with. The, he's got the Fender. Yes. Hanging on his hip. Yes. He's looking as cool as can be. Always. Yes. <laughs> and I had the tape in my 1977 Firebird. And Laura and I both had Firebirds, by the way. Mine I'm, was a little newer. You're but, a little younger. Uh, <laughs> not That's much. Right. Um, so I had the 1977 Firebird, a spree, and I was 
ironically driving to my brother's wake and I had it in and I didn't know the order of the songs. And that was one of those moments when I said, I need to know everything's going to be okay. And that song came on. And it's been one of those ones that um, I, I've heard over time that, has, that makes a difference to me. Hmm. So, and it, and it is. It, it's, you know, the words to it are perfect. They are. They are. They are. And I'm thinking about, I, I'm just kind of working through the song as I watch you and I can, I can feel your emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've, you've lived that, haven't mm-hmm. you? Yeah. 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 You 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 haven't surrendered. No. Yeah. No, and I'm not going to. No. I no. will I will go out kicking whenever that happens. Mm. Um, Laura, thank you um, so much. I can't thank you enough for for joining me today, um, and I hope we can do it again sometime. I would love to. What's your song? Oof. Um, do I have to pick one? No. Okay. I'm, I, I I will. There is a uh, a little known song on an album called Devils and Dust, Mm -hmm. called uh, Jesus Was an Only Son. And it is, um, I am not a very religious guy. I'm more spiritual, like you said you were. It is the story of the days before Jesus died um, from Mary's perspective, from his mother's perspective. Oh, wow. And um, I'll tell you kind of a a funny story about it, you know. Um, So he effectively walks the path with his mother that he's going to walk to his death. That's the story of the song. Oh, wow. And um, and Julie and I both love this album, my wife and I. And um, and we were driving uh, to see my mother one day, and <laughs> um, and the uh, the song came out, and we're like, oh, this is beautiful, and it really takes our breath away. And about 20 seconds later, we are just wrecked in tears. I can barely drive. We're like, <laughs> okay, we can't listen anymore. We got to turn it off. <laughs> I have to listen to that. I don't oh, even... Oh, it's, it's a beaut. I mean, it, it, it's... it's um, it, I, I love the big E Street sound, you know? Yes. Like, oh, there's nothing like it. But when it's, when you when you pare it down to just Bruce, it's so intimate. And um, there, there's a there's a Louis C.K. moment. Um, you know who Louis is? Yeah. Uh, and he said... Um, he said, I, I was driving in the car one day, and you know you know how you get this feeling like, oh, I don't want feelings to come up, so right. if a song comes on the radio and I start to feel something, I better look at my phone or I better turn it off or something. And he was talking about Jungle Land. And oh. uh, at the end of Jungle Land, he said, there's a song, and I think it's Jungle Land, where Bruce sounds like he's far away and moaning. And yes. You know <laughs> I can, I just, yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, I gotcha. And he, and he said, like, and I could either stay and listen to it and experience the moment, or I, I could turn it off and ignore it. And I decided to pull over, and he said, and there I am crying like a little bitch in the car. <laughs> but he said it was beautiful. It was I experienced something. It was this great moment. And, you know, like that that album, that Devils and Dust album, you know, it makes me weepy in the best way. It makes me right. present. I can't ignore the fact that I'm here now, you right. know. Yeah. A survivor moment. A survivor moment. So mm-hmm. here's the survivors, Laura. That's right, John. Yes. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, mm-hmm. what do they do? Well, they can uh, call me or get in touch with me through Psychology Today. I'm on their website. Yep. And um, that's all I have. I and uh, you, you can also, if you want to get in touch with Laura, you can reach out to me. Okay. Because um, so I'm right do, next door. Yeah. <laughs> and I, t- I will knock on the wall and say, hey, I got an email for you. Um, <laughs> so uh, thank you again. Thank you, John. So much. Um, 
You guys can find this podcast on iTunes, on Podbean, Stitcher, WGN Plus, and LiveLeadPlay.com, which is affiliated with IPEC Coaching. Um, there is a free parenting program. It's easy. It's just five videos to watch, and it'll help you, I promise, and it's not boring. It's on my website at drjohnduffy.com. And um, if you have thoughts about what I ought to cover on this podcast or somebody who ought to be on this podcast, let me know. Um, John G. Duffy at drjohnduffy.com. And if you want to get in touch with Laura Kaler, John G. Duffy at drjohnduffy.com. And I will put you right in touch with her. Laura, thanks again. Thanks, John. I'll talk to you next time, folks. Bye.